what's most important here, the Word of God. Luke 15. We've been strolling through the Gospel of Luke, and we have learned a lot uh, in the process. Today we're going to look at uh, probably one of the most famous chapters in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15, and we'll end our time taking communion. So we're turning there. Luke 15, verse 1, let's read together. Now the tax collectors and sinners, Luke says, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But, Luke 15 says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven, Jesus says, than the one sinner who repents. That of a 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or he goes on. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God of a one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father... Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come here, Claude, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Lost and found. Lost and found is the title of the sermon today. Anyone here have a, a funny or inspiring story of something being lost and found? It has to be brief, but I will give you the microphone if you have it. It has to be brief. Anybody have a good story? Right here. Yeah, um, I see two hands. Two hands. Sure. Sure. Give me the mic. 
few years back I um, was getting to Boston University and I got into my class and realised I didn't have my purse with me, my handbag and my purse. So I went back round to the bus station, to the bus stop, and the next bus was said, oh, um, the driver took it to the station, so which was actually round the back of the university, so I went straight there and I had to move back my bag. So I'd been lost for like half an hour. Okay, you know, we adopted Abigail, she was about five. We'd only had her a couple of weeks and we took her to this um, theme park. And uh, for some reason, she went out, there were about three doors out of the theme park and she went out one door. And, us and the rest of the family went out another door. So we stood and we, we didn't really know her that well, we'd only had her a couple of weeks. And we couldn't find her. And we're like, oh my gosh, you know, they've entrusted us with this little girl. And we've lost her. <laughs> and um, and, and Roger and, and the rest of the kids, they went up all over the city park looking for her. And I just stood and said, God, please, please bring her back. And I heard this little girl coming and running and going, Mommy! <laughs> <laughs> about 20 minutes later, she was in the That was a long time. I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. Anybody else that I can see one more hand here? Oh. The story of being left from uh, Well, I would go in um, Almec, Alpia, it was detached many years ago, it was about 1997. And when he reached out to me, I actually called the chair. My excuse was, I played football that weekend and didn't come. But playing a football with my idol. And God is amazing because I had a strong playing football. And that made me conscious of God. And I can be baptized in 1997. And the rest is history. So they put while you were lost and then you were found. <laughs> so yeah, just for the sake of time, I'm moving on here. But obviously we all, we all are familiar with this idea of something that is very valuable, very precious, very important, getting lost. And then the joy and the relief. Uh, and sometimes the financial gain and even the spiritual gain once that thing is found. You know, we all we all can be forgetful. We all can lose things, and and you think about you know losing your purse, you know, or losing a child, and 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 one of the things that the Bible makes very clear that is very valuable to us, and one of the things that we absolutely cannot lose is, is that of our heart. You know, that that of our heart and life and our heart for God. Uh, and this is a passage that I believe really addresses. Uh, through these stories of things being lost and found, really our heart that we should have uh, toward a God who, who seeks us and wants to save us and find us uh, in life. Um, you know, where is your heart for God today? Uh, that is a good question for us all. Where, where is your heart for God? And just because we're here doesn't mean that our heart is where it needs to be. Uh, we live in a very busy time, and A.W. Tozer, a great uh, Christian uh, theologian and author from the 20th century, uh, he wrote, he wrote this in the 1940s and 50s. He said, but I believe it's probably even more true today. He said, right now we are in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found among us. And instead, 
are programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. And can we all relate to that? The religious complexity. You know, we can be religious. We can come to church. We can do the things that we know God wants us to do. Go through the religious activities, but somehow lose our heart in that process. And maybe today that's where you're at. You know, your heart is not where it really needs to be. You know, we drown out the simplicity of Christ. And I know for me, you know, as someone who is employed by the church, as someone who, uh, you know, is called to, to even just, just teach God's truth to people, I can feel the same thing. I, I, you know, the more I write sermons, the more I try to put them together, and I especially felt it with this passage, because Luke 15 is so epic, you know, I can get this sense of dread as I'm trying to put together and communicate God's word, uh, to, you know, to, to God's people. Uh, I start reading commentaries, books, uh, you know, opinions. Uh, I start thinking about my own feelings, my own, my own thoughts. And I think, who am I to speak to anyone about God? And I start to, I start to be burdened uh, by the joy of, of, of diving into God's Word. Uh, but that's when, I, you know, that, that's when I start to realize that this is not really about me. This is really about God. Uh, and yes, I have, I have a, a wayward heart. I have a sinful heart. And that's why I need to focus on Christ's heart and God's heart. Uh, and this passage to me is a great way to do that, to, to clear away the debris and the dust uh, and, you know, and, and, and the strife and the tension that we all feel, we all experience, and just get back to the simplicity of Christ and what we have in a relationship with Him and what He offers us today. Uh, it, it is something that can change and transform wherever we're at in life. Uh, just the simple love uh, that He presents here through this incredible parable. Uh, this parable um, is a triune parable, if you will. It's told in one setting, but there's three pictures within uh, this one setting. We tend to separate them. From the different ideas, but these ideas all build really well together uh, to really point us ultimately to the love of God, and that's how we'll end our time um, today. But there's a lot here we can learn. Uh, we can learn about the value of a soul. We can certainly learn about the value of a soul. Uh, three things that are lost and represent a lost soul to God here, I believe. The sheep, uh, the lost coin, and the man. Uh, you know, a sheep would be valuable back then. You know, that, that's property, and, and that brought in uh, livelihood and sustenance for the family that owned it. Uh, money uh, is also very valuable uh, because it literally is, is valuable uh, and can be used for many things. And, of course, uh, uh, the human being, the, the son that is lost here in Jerusalem's family, is probably, you know, even more valuable than the other two. Uh, the loss increases as well as we go along. Uh, Percent-wise, you know, it was one out of a hundred sheep, right? That was lost. Uh, that's one percent. Yet the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine to find the one. Uh, the next parable, uh, you know, one out of ten coins is lost. That's ten percent, right? If you can do the math, let's see if you're thinking here. Uh, you know, the woman has nine coins, but she acts like she has none, right? Because she's lost the one coin. And then, of course, with the one out of two sons being out of the house, that's that's fifty percent loss. Fifty percent loss. And of course, the father longs for the return of the wayward child. While the one remains at home. You know, all three um, lost things are, are, are valuable things. And when they're found in all three stories, there's great rejoicing when all three things that are lost indeed uh, are found. And so we can see God's heart and value in each of our souls in this passage. Um, it reminds me of uh, 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 3-4. It refers to God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge 
of the truth. God cares about each and every one of our salvations in this room this morning. So we learn here about the value of a soul. We also learn about the destructive uh, nature of sin. We also learn about the destructive nature of sin. The sheep, the sheep knew vaguely that it was lost. Sheep aren't that smart, but they're probably smart enough to know he wasn't with the flock. Uh, this reminds us of the foolishness of our sinful ways. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that sin is indeed foolish. Uh, the coin is an inanimate object, so I don't think the coin uh, knew that it was lost. It didn't have a clue. That reminds us though, of the ignorance that can be in us due to the hardening of our hearts when it comes to sin. Someone who doesn't even know that they're lost or separated from God, they're created. Uh, and then, of course, the son deliberately got himself lost in wild living. Um, and he, you know, this represents perhaps the rebellious heart, right, toward God uh, that we uh, all can be familiar with. And so sin... Sin can be forgiven, and that's the good news in Jesus, but sin is not forgiving. It's not forgiving, and we see here uh, the destructive pattern in nature, uh, pattern in nature uh, of sin. Uh, Romans talks about this progression, the terrible progression of sin. The wrath of God, it says, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. And birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires for their hearts. Towards sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Who is forever praised. And so from this parable we see uh, what Romans talks about. This this, this, this degradation. this, This snowball effect that sin has in our lives. To the point where we can no longer even acknowledge God and his truth. And at some point... God has to just leave us alone in that because it's so destructive and so terrible and so dark. Uh, And so this parable teaches us about the value of a soul, the destructive nature of sin. But I believe the true message and the encouraging message here is really about the amazing nature of God. Uh, The triune parable reveals a a triune God. Um, It's quite interesting when you go through it. uh, The first uh, parable talks about a shepherd seeking a lost sheep. Uh, Of course, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. In chapter 10 of John's Gospel, who lays down his life for the sheep. And so we see, uh, you know, Christ. Uh, then we see in the second picture a woman sweeping her house to look for her lost coin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and Romans 8 uh, say that the Holy Spirit searches all things. And so here we see, you know, God the Son. Now we see God uh, the Spirit. Uh, and then the third picture, the, the loving Father looking for his lost and foolish Son. You know, of course, it's a picture of, uh, of God the Father. Uh, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, right, that He sent uh, His one and only Son. And so we tend to emphasize the third parable, but like God's nature, uh, we must see all three clearly together to see it all. And they work so well together. Yeah. Uh, because without, you know, without, without Christ coming and seeking us out, we could not truly know God. Without the Holy Spirit uh, searching our hearts and working on our hearts, we could not be convicted of our sin and come, and come to a knowledge of the truth. And without God's loving embrace, there's no way we could be uh, made right with Him in the end. 
And so there are three amazing things uh, here uh, about God, uh, and I think these three amazing stories can teach us a lot about Him. And so let's just let's just look here a little bit more deeply as we look at the three parables uh, together as one, and see what we can learn about this uh, amazing God that we are referring to. I think the first thing here, very simply, is that God seeks. We see here in this passage that God seeks. In verses three through seven. Uh, the first picture here uh, portrays God as a shepherd, right, pursuing a lost sheep. Uh, William Barclay, uh, he's a he's a Scotsman. I don't know if you know that, but uh, he's a theologian uh, from Scotland, and he has some great uh, cultural insight uh, on shepherding that I just want to share with you guys briefly here. He says the shepherd in Judea had a hard and dangerous task. Pasture was scarce; the narrow central plateau was only a few miles wide, and then it plunged down to the wild cliffs and the terrible devastation of the desert. There were no restraining walls, and the sheep would wander. George Adam Smith, an Old Testament scholar who traveled extensively in Palestine, wrote of the shepherd, On some high moor across which at night the hyenas howl, when you meet him, sleepless, far-sighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning on a staff and looking out over his scattered sheep, everyone lay on his heart, you understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front in his people's history. Why they gave his name to the king and made him the symbol of providence, why Christ took him, as the type of self-sacrifice. Um, so the shepherd, that, that, that's all they knew. That, that They lived out among the sheep. They watched over the sheep. They were with the sheep 24-7 when they were out in pasture. You know, that's all they knew. Uh, and you know, what's interesting is the context of these three parables, uh, we read back in verses 1-2 through and Luke 15, it's the Pharisees, right, who teach the law, muttering to themselves that Jesus, he welcomes these, these sinners and eats with them. And, and so the con- context is these supposed shepherds of Israel who actually just, just see you know the people that are lost as just dumb sheep. And they don't care about them at all. And they're the opposite of the shepherd who runs out and sacrifices his livelihood so that the sheep uh, can be okay. And so Jesus contrasts you know, the heart of God to the heart of these religious leaders. Uh, and the shepherd goes out, he leaves the 99, and he goes out just to find the one, right? He acts as though he has no sheep at all. Uh, in his distress. Uh, and then it says when he finds him, he says, oh, you little sheep, and, you know, gives, gives him a little whooping. No, he, 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 he joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. He joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. And then he returns home and says, yeah, I found a stupid sheep. No, it says, what does it say? He, he does, he throws a party. He celebrates. He says, come on over, I'm going to celebrate that I found my lost sheep. Is this not clearly the heart of God? He values each and every one of us as we are. We all like sheep. The Bible says have gone astray. We're foolish. We get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. In danger of our own doing, right? But God joyfully seeks us out nonetheless. You know, in this first picture we see the relentless and joyful pursuit of God for us. That God seeks us out, no matter where we may be uh, today. You know, I think of uh, Zacchaeus. He'll show up here in Luke 19, toward the end of the Gospel of Luke. And he is the chief tax collector in his local town. And Jesus sees him and asks him to go to his home. And, and just like they do here in Luke 15, verses 1-2, to the, the self-righteous among them, they mutter, Oh, he's gone to be in a, the house of a sinner. You know, they, they mutter it again. And yes, in the house of a quote-unquote sinner, Jesus is right at home. And that's the good news about Jesus, right? Uh, For all of us. And Luke concludes uh, with Jesus saying, Today salvation has come to this house. Luke 19, verse 9 through 10. 
Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, no matter where we are today, no matter who we are today, no matter what we have done today, God seeks us to know us fully and completely. And when He finds us in our lost, sad state, He's full of joy. There's a smile on His face and warmth in His heart. But of course, uh, you know, that's not our nature. Our nature, when people do foolish things and people wander off in their sin and people do things they ought not to do, our nature is to judge, our nature is to condemn, and our nature is to, is to push them away. That is just our nature, but that is not the heart and the nature of God. And it's so clearly displayed here. God seeks. May we be encouraged and brought closer to God through this wonderful picture uh, that we have of God being like a shepherd. And no matter where our heart is today, hard, confused, discouraged, wandering, healing, growing, learning, God seeks us out. It's inspiring. And it's also convicting because if we say today, I'm a disciple of Jesus which is another way of saying you're a Christian, this ought to be our heart for those who are wandering, for those who are lost, for those who, who have strayed and are straying uh, from God the Father. But is that our heart? How far do we go to seek and save the lost? We would never speak like a Pharisee about the lost, but in our hearts, in our actions, in the last week, which one are we more like? Are we more like the shepherd or more like the Pharisee? It's an inspiring and convicting thought, isn't it? God seeks... The second thing here is God searches. God seeks, but He also searches. In verses 8 through 10, we have another uh, beautiful picture of the heart of God. Uh, it's a picture of a woman. You know, the first uh, parable was maybe a bit masculine. You know, the shepherd out there with the sheep and his weapons and, you know, his, his big, thick beard. And The second one, though, is a picture of a woman. A lovely, a lovely woman who's taking care of her home. While she's at home, she, she loses a coin. And isn't that the amazing thing about the ministry of Jesus? He can relate to the man. He can relate to the woman. Uh, and he does that here. Uh, this woman in this, this house, so the houses in Palestine, at uh, this time they would have had one window about 18 inches uh, in circumference, not a very big window. Uh, the floors would have been dirt. And on top of those dirt floors would have been uh, dried reeds. And so you can imagine if a coin gets lost in that house... It's not going to be so easy to find. Yeah. It's going to be kind of like trying to find a needle in a haystack, if you will, right? And, and so the woman is panicking. And she, uh, she, you know, she, she lights a, a lamp. She, she sweeps the floor until she finds that coin. Uh, and it's a beautiful picture, you know, of, of the feminine virtues of God. That God is patient. God is diligent. God has attention to the, the minute details in our lives. And, uh, you know, it's awesome just to see, you know, how Jesus can just, he can just relate to, to, to all people. You know, the, you know the, the masculine traits of God, the feminine traits of God. As male and female are made in His image. And that's just a great reminder to plug. The men's night on the 19th of October and the women's tea on the 20th of October. Go to bourbonchurch.org.uk to sign up. <laughs> but back to the story here. I'm trying to eliminate announcements on Sundays, but I always uh, try to work it in when I can. It's going to be great events to discover the masculine and feminine heart among us. But the story here, you know, the, the woman here, she loses what kind of coin? It's called a drachma, right? It's a drachma, and it, and it was a coin that was given for a day's wage. And so this could be the reason for her urgency. If she's a woman who is poor, that's a lot of money. And that's not money that she can replace uh, very easily. 
Uh, the other possibility is not just economic in their motivation, it's also just sentimental. Uh, uh, women uh, who were married, uh, uh, young Jewish women who were married, would bring to their, their wedding day, they would be wearing what, what is called a, a semedi. And you may have seen them, this is from uh, uh, First Century Vogue magazine. Uh, <laughs> women would wear these, these headdresses. I couldn't find a real picture of this, is the best I could do, but you've probably seen this in different uh, things that you've, you've You've, uh, pictures you've seen of, of early Palestine and, and when Jesus uh, was there. It was called a Semedi. And, and, and a woman would bring this on her wedding day and she would wear it. And, it. and it was something that she would save up for as a young girl for the day of her wedding. And it would be, literally be ten coins on a headdress. Uh, and so she had ten coins and lost one. It's very likely maybe Jesus was referring to that she had lost one of the coins from her cement. Uh, and that would have been a very very sentimental thing that she would not have wanted to, loss, uh, uh, to lose. Uh, but the other, uh, the, the other, the other thing that started happening though at this time was was uh, uh, husbands started to put more and more valuable coins into their wives' semetis because one of the laws that was was true in this time was debt collectors could not take the coins of the woman's semeti, and so some husbands would put very valuable coins, you know, to add to uh, their wives' crowns, you know, kind of they were, you know, if they were in debt. So, so she may have had multiple motivations. Uh, for this urgency uh, to find this this here lost coin, you know Jesus, you know he, he gives us many insights on God, does he not? And one of his most profound to the Jews in his day uh, was this lesson right here that that God searches for us, that God, you know, he 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 longs to, to find us in our lost state. Uh, and it's not hard to see that's the heart of God. When you go back to the very the very first search for for man and woman's heart was in the Garden of Eden after the fall. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And, and, and what do they do after they disobeyed God? They hide from Him. Which is kind of funny because you can't really do that, you know. But nonetheless, they do that. And, and what does God do? He, he searches them out, right? He searches them out. Uh, and I love what it says in verse 10. It says that the angels rejoice. The angels rejoice when this lost coin uh, is found here in Luke 15, uh, verse 10. It reminds me of, uh, of, of 1 Peter chapter 1. Yeah. Uh, Peter's referring to salvation. And he says, the prophet who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently with greatest, the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, as Peter talks to the church, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says, even angels long to look into these things. You know, what are these things that, that even the angels long to look into? It's the things of salvation. It's the amazing story of salvation. The amazing experience of a, of a lost soul getting saved. Jesus coming to the earth to search for us is an absolute wild moment from a heavenly perspective. The angels rejoice over it. And they love, they love to look into it. They love to talk about it in heaven all the time. And this should, this should motivate us, this should inspire us, this should encourage us to allow God to, to find us as He searches for each and every one of us. And, you know, we, we, we can't see God. His, his qualities are, are, are not, you know, they're invisible in many ways, but we can experience God. We can, we can know God is seeking us out uh, in these ways. And I know for me, when I look back on my, my conversion, when I found my salvation, I can see how much God was searching me out. Maybe you can relate to this if you're a Christian today. I think of the, you know, the timing. You know, here I was, the end of my first year of university, 
Uh, all the things I thought I was really good at, I wasn't very good at. I was very humbled. Uh, and then the last thing that I thought, you know, uh, you know, the security of a girlfriend, you know, she she got me for another guy. I never had that happen. And so, and then right after that happens, I get reached out to by a Christian walking across campus. And this Christian was walking across campus, and he happened to stop me because he I had a hat on that he thought was from a university that he's he, where he was from, but it actually wasn't. And he actually stopped me talking about my hat, and I was offended by it. I thought that it's Michigan, not Missouri. I was trying to explain it to him. And, um, you know, and, and then they go, oh, okay. And then he, he kind of recovers, and he invites me to church. And, and I wasn't really interested in coming to church. I didn't really wasn't really much of a church door at that time. And, but he was smart enough to get my phone number. Uh, back then, I didn't have a mobile phone. Those were just coming out. And so he got my dorm, dormitory room phone number. Uh, it didn't have voicemail. I didn't have a pager. I didn't have a mobile phone. So you didn't have to literally ring me when I'm there, right, to get a hold of me. Lo and behold, he rings me while I'm there and gets a hold of me. He says, hey. You want to come to church? I say, hey, I, I have no way to get down there. It's in the city. I don't have a car. He just happens to have a car. Okay, well, you have a car? Okay, well, I'll come pick you up. Okay, I'll go. You know? So, so we go to church. He gets me to church. He's like, yes, like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this guy in the right direction here. And then, and then, you know, I come to church. I'm like, these people are crazy. They're singing. They're clapping. They're hugging each other. Uh, this guy's preaching and it's challenging me. I, I was like, I, I'm out of here, man. And he's like, you want to come back to church? I said, no way. He said, but would you send the Bible with me? Yeah, I'll send the Bible with you. So we started sending the Bible together. And I'm sitting there sending the Bible. I'm like, yeah, I get what you guys are saying. But honestly, I just don't think I want to do this. And he goes, okay, well, let's, let's look at the cross of Christ. Then we look at the cross of Christ. It is the worst cross study in the history of the world. It went on for three hours. It started at midnight. Two of the brothers were arguing uh, because they were laughing at one another and the way they were pronunciating. It was terrible. And after that study, I said, I need to become a Christian. And I could go on and on and on. You understand what I'm saying here? God, God was searching for my soul. God would not be stopped by situations, circumstances, and people. Because that's just who God is. He wants me to be one with Him, just as He wants you to be one with Him as well. The Holy Spirit is always searching us out. John 16, verse 8. The Spirit, you know, as it comes, Jesus says, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, God God is always searching us out through the Holy Spirit, through His work in the world today. The Holy Spirit is here. He is here, and God is searching our hearts today, right now, through Him. But do we want to be found, is always the question. If you're visiting with us today, I don't believe, like my story from 1995 that I just gave you a brief psychotic view of, um, I don't believe that that you're here by coincidence. I believe you're here because God is searching for your soul. He wants to restore your soul to Him. He wants to help you see the whole purpose of your life is is to walk with Him and know Him. And to be one with Him. And that's actually the whole, the whole meaning behind your life. And so I hope if you're visiting with us today that you will, you will allow God to find you. Because He's not far from you at all. And church, let's remember what is happening. When we, when we uh, try to share our faith. When we try to put out the good news to our neighbors, our friends, our classmates. We're, we're, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to work on their hearts and to search out their hearts so that God can find them. God seeks, God searches, and the last thought here today is God saves. And then we'll end our time taking communion. And in verses 11 through 32, uh, you know, is a very, probably the most famous parable uh, of all of Jesus' parables. Uh, This parable, of course, uh, you know, uh, ends this whole setting with a wonderful picture of God's heart. Uh, 
the lost son, of course, I think represents the sinners who are gathered around Jesus. Uh, while it also gives us uh, the picture of, of the older brother, the son who stays at home, of the, of the Pharisees and teachers of the law that are mentioned in Luke 15, uh, verses 1 through 2. Uh, this parable is perhaps, you know, the most loved and well-received of all of Jesus's. Um, many things have been said about it. It's, it's, it's the crown and pearl of all parables, it's been said. It's the gospel within the gospel. Uh, George Murray uh, spoke of it as the most divinely tender and most humanly touching story ever told on earth. Charles Dickens described it as the finest short story ever written. And there's a lot of cultural background that we need to to mine a bit here uh, to really understand how deep it truly is. Um, uh, First off, you know, the son. So the son comes to the father uh, here, the younger son, and asks for his share of the estate. Uh, That's not usually what happened. Uh, and then probably even today is probably true as well. Uh, this usually occurred after the father died. Uh, but even if it did occur uh, while the father was alive, the father would have been issuing that and go into some kind of retirement mode, if you will. Um, so for the son to come and make this demand is just, it's just total disrespect. It's total disregard uh, for his father. Uh, and we know from Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, uh, the older son, the firstborn, would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance. And so the son would have gotten here, as he made this demand, one-third of his father's inheritance. And for what we can tell, the father gives it to him uh, nonetheless, uh, despite the insult. And of course, the, we read the son, uh, you know, he squanders the inheritance, it says, in wild living uh, there in Luke 15. And, and it's so bad, he's feeding the pigs, and he wants to eat what they're eating. That's how, that's how bad it gets. Uh, the Jews had a saying, Curse is he who feeds swine. Because that was an unclean animal, and so you, you know this is like this is like the lowest of lows. You know this is like you know bankrupt, homeless addict on the street today. It's it's just it's just a human who's just going through the toughest stuff life can offer. That's where this 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 uh, young son is uh, as we as we uh, pick up the story. Uh, but then uh, in Luke uh, fifteen uh, verse seventeen, it says he comes to his senses. A moment of repentance occurs, right? And he says, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It sounds like a good speech, doesn't it? So he got up, it says, and went to his father. And note here, he doesn't ask for uh, his father to make him into a slave. Slaves are actually part of the family, although the lowest part of the family in Roman times. Uh, he actually asked his father to make him to a hired servant, uh, which was just a day worker who could be dismissed in a, on a day's notice. So this is the lowest form of any kind of connection to his father that he could be uh, in that community that the son decides to go back and ask for. And of course the story goes on. Um, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So the father was, was waiting for him, anticipating it. And he was filled, it says, with compassions. Uh, with compassion, uh, the, the Greek phrase there is that his vitals were moved. He was moved inside. And he runs to his son, it says, which an older man in, in, in Palestine publicly would never do that. He would never run. Uh, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The, the, the phrase for that in the Greek is he, it's covered him in kisses. He just smothers him in kisses. And the son, of course, begins his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer willing to be called your son. And the father responds, you are right. Maybe one day you can earn your way back. Get inside. No, no. That's not what it says. But the father said to his servants, he's not even listening to his son's speech. Quick, he says to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
The robe was a symbol of honor. Put a ring on his finger, a symbol of authority, like the power of attorney today. And sandal on his feet. Slaves had no shoes, but children did. So he quickly is restoring him to the family. And he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it, which would have been a feast of feasts, right? And his heart fully is expressed here. He says, let's have a feast in verse 23 and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, the parable of the lost son is what it's often called, but maybe it's better called the parable of the amazing father. Because he's really the hero. He's really the hero in this story. You know, the father immediately and fully forgives. There's no, yes, you are forgiven, but I will not forget. There's no, yes, you are accepted as long as, so in the blank. And I think it's, it's really uh, clear here when you read this passage, God is far more forgiving than we are. God is far more gracious and merciful than we are. Yeah. Because you could imagine ourselves being in the same scenario and how we might respond. And this is what is so amazing about, about God's grace. We're treated as we don't deserve. And this parable is a wonderful picture of just that. And of course the parable has a twist. For the religiously proud Pharisees and teachers of the law who are mentioned in verses 1 through 2. It ends uh, in verses 25 to 32 uh, focusing on the older brother who represents, I think, the heart of the religiously proud. Uh, unlike God, uh, they would rather see the lost condemned than saved. Yeah. And that's what they're doing, right? And that's why Jesus tells these three uh, parables. And it goes on there. It says, the older son was in the field as the son returns. Uh, pick it up there. Uh, in verse uh, 25, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. He replied, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, it says, and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Once again, God seeks us out. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Clearly, it was grim duty, not loving service, that the son had. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours... Notice he doesn't say my brother. He says this, this son of yours, he's detaching himself... And dehumanizing his brother has squandered your property with prostitutes. He assumed the worst. We don't know if that's actually what happened. When he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him, the older brother says. The father replies, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. In other words, you never asked. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, the older brother was making the celebration all about him. Right? Making it all about him and he was missing the whole point of the celebration because it was all about the love that the household had for whoever, whoever was in the house at that time. Um, you know, we question uh, God's heart. Uh, some people will even say, I don't, I don't believe in God because how could you believe in a God when you see such a, such a suffering planet, when you see such evil uh, out there in this world? How could a loving and good God allow such things uh, uh, to happen? And we question God's heart to the point where we believe that that even means He doesn't exist. And that's very common thinking today. But when you look at this parable, you realize the issue is not God's heart. It's ours. Yeah. It's ours. Yes. You know, if we are lost, we can be saved, and our heart for God will will open that door or close it. And you can be very familiar with God and very near to Him. The older brother living in the home, 
being completely blessed by His Father, yet so far from Him. So far from Him. And I love this. You know, the answer for the older son, who's religiously proud, is the same as the younger brother, who is rebellious and sinful. It's to simply understand and get and embrace the Father's love. You know, God's love can change all of our hearts. All of us struggle with both of these, these sins that are represented in the sons here. We all struggle sometimes with sin. We're all tempted by, by, by sin. Biblically, sin is just missing the mark. It's just falling short of, of the good that we can do. And, and we can all relate to the, to the younger brother in that sense, right? Uh, but we can all relate probably to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as well the, that are represented by the older brother um, in the parable. Uh, that we can get proud. We can get unforgiving. We can get self-righteous. We can get uh, unmerciful toward those who, who, who are not doing what we think they ought to be doing. You know, as it was then, uh, this picture of a God who saves sinners is indeed scandalous. It, it's, it's, dare I even say, reckless uh, in some sense for the Father just to bring the Son right back in the way that He does. But God risked it all in Jesus to save us all. And the three parables showed this heart through and through. Uh, there's a song that I, I, I heard uh, visiting a church recently called Reckless Love. Um, and it captures a bit, I think, of what we see in these three parables. And the, and the thing that I want us to really focus on here before we take communion is this amazing love of God. Um, you know, how do we understand it? How do we grasp it? How do we capture it? Because it can change our hearts. It has changed our hearts and it will continue to change our hearts, but we've got to understand it. Uh, and I struggle. I struggle to understand God's love, let alone uh, let it change me. Uh, you know, as I go on in life. Uh, but I love the lyrics here of the song. This is the chorus, and we'll listen to the song here in a moment and reflect on it. He says, There's no shadow you won't light up speaking to God, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. And he sings of, of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it, so you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. To me, this parable uh, really reminds us of, of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. You know, Jesus' words, His life, His death, His resurrection are meant to move our hearts. Move our hearts toward love and life as it should be. There's nothing more powerful, nothing more powerful today... For, for what you and I need to change, for what you and I need to become, than the love of God. It's the most powerful thing. And it's probably the thing that we struggle the most with grasping a lot of times. And today I think we have an opportunity to really grasp it a bit more. Um, and, and, and the two subs really reflect uh, the, the, the joy and the anticipation that can occur in your life if you really embrace it. Uh, and, and the demise and the fall if we do not. Only love can take that which is lost and make it found. You know, will your heart be found by Jesus today if you're not yet a Christian? And is your heart still moved by Jesus today if you are? And so we'll reflect on his words as we listen to this song and then we'll uh, end uh, by taking uh, communion together. But yeah, just, just, just reflect on the parable and reflect on the words of the song here. Um, and then we'll pray and take communion together.